For over 25 years, the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has strived to help shape a society that is secure, free, and virtuous. Acton recognizes that property rights are an essential component of the free market and the free society. So this fall, you are invited to join the Acton Institute's conference towards a free and virtuous society, life, liberty, and property in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. You won't want to miss out on this in-depth examination of private property from accomplished liberty-minded scholars. To register or learn more, visit acton.org events. That's A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G slash events. One of the great uh, historical realities of African Americans after emancipation is the history of so many uh, African Americans who walk and travel the entire country looking for their family member, trying to reunite themselves with those they love. And I think that sometimes we emphasize so much on what we suffered instead of what we did against the background of that suffering. And uh, if we need to begin to change that narrative into one of hope of beauty and of strength instead of one that only reacts in the presence of, of oppression. That was the voice of Ismael Hernandez. He is the founder and uh, executive director of the Freedom and Virtue Institute uh, based in Fort Myers, Florida. He's our guest this week on the Upstream segment with Bruce Edward Walker here on Radio Free Acton. Hi, everybody. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, and it's a pleasure to be back with you this week hosting the podcast. Uh, as I said, Ismail Hernandez is with us this week with Bruce Edward Walker. They're going to be talking about a film that was just released a little while ago called Detroit. Uh, if you don't know anything about the film, it is based on uh, true-to-life events that occurred in Detroit, Michigan during the uh, riots in 1967, a very dark time in the city's history and one of the darkest moments of the riot, uh, and that gave birth to this movie. Uh, Ismail Hernandez is uh, going to be giving his perspective on that with Bruce. That'll be coming up in just a moment here. Following that, we'll be talking with Jacqueline Isaacs. Uh, Jacqueline was here just recently for uh, an Acton on Tap event that took place at the, the Knickerbocker Zeppelin Lounge downtown here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Brand new, uh, brand new uh, location there for Acton on Tap, and uh, we were excited to get that series kicked off once again. Jacqueline Isaacs is one of the co-authors of a book called Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. That was the topic of her address at Acton on Tap, and we're going to talk with her in a little more detail about that topic uh, coming up after our talk with Ismail Hernandez. So without further ado, let's uh, throw the microphone over to Bruce Edward Walker for Upstream. And uh, his talk with Ismail Hernandez on the movie Detroit, right here on Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Upstream and today we are very honored to speak with Ismael Hernandez, the author of Not Tragically Colored, Freedom, Personhood, and the Renewal of Black America. 
And the topic of our conversation will relate to his book, but we're also going to cover the recently released film Detroit, which covers the 1967 Detroit riots. And that movie is directed by Catherine Bigelow, who is also responsible for Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, and Point Break. So good morning, Ismail. Good morning. How, are, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you. Terrific. And you're, you're calling from the, the Freedom and Virtue Institute in Fort Myers, Florida, correct? Correct. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, I, I emailed you last week, and I requested that you go see the movie. And um, why don't you give me an overview on, on what your, t- your takeaways were from the film? Yes. Uh, thank you for having me here with you. Uh, it's always a pleasure to to talk with people uh, who like the Acton Institute and support the, the Institute. Uh, it's, it's a great uh, epic. It's a great uh, portrayal of a historical e- event uh, that is important for people to understand and, and, and know. Uh, I think that sometimes these kind of movies have a narrative that and a historical uh, appreciation that I may not always understand or may not always uh, accept. Uh, so it is important to know that every time that you see a portrayal of his historical event, uh, we need to be able to separate fact from narrative and uh, and what are the what is the author uh, or the 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 director trying to convey with what he is telling us, and it, there is always uh, the possibility of creating stereotypical characters of how the police are supposed to be or how people are supposed to be, and and we have to be able to understand that that we are being sold a narrative with the images that are coming coming to us. Uh, but overall, it was, a, it was a, a good portrayal of a historical event. Right. Well, uh, for, for those unaware of the, the 1967 riots uh, and uh, what happened at the Algiers Motel, uh, there is nothing but uh, secondhand information from that. So um, it's a he said, he said, he said, she said, she said uh, type of narrative. And uh, John Hersey, the uh, the novelist and uh, journalist, wrote a, a fairly detailed account of uh, the Algiers Motel incident. And I, I, I remember reading that way back in the day, probably back in the 1980s. Uh, while I was living in Detroit. So uh, the, the movie has uh, John Boyega, uh, who is a character with no name, who plays a, a security guard, who uh, is trying to settle the irrational tempers of uh, mostly a, a terrible character. And uh, we're not really sure whether he was as evil as as all of that, but uh, his the... The actor is Will Poulter, who plays uh, the character Krauss, and he's kind of reminiscent of the villains that Dan Duryea played uh, in such old films as Fritz Lang's Scarlet Street with Edward G. Robinson. Uh, they're 
there are a couple of white girls there that from Ohio that kind of spark a, a lot of racist sentiment from the white police officers who uh, feel that uh, there should be no interracial relationships. So anyway, it is um, a very disturbing in uh, his depiction of someone who is, uh, as Lord Acton would say, exercising absolute authority, and uh, it, which is a very corruptive influence. So um, yeah, and, and also to know that uh, as a result of the, the riots, 43 people died, about 1,200 people were injured, there were 7,200 arrests and 2,000 buildings were destroyed. Uh, there were, a National Guardsman was killed. 11 citizens were shot by the National Guard. Uh, the uh, 12th was shot by a, uh, an Army soldier. Uh, one police officer died and uh, one firefighter died. I, I think he's using your specific description of the movie, which is, is very comprehensive uh, as a background. We, we can see then that we, we really don't know what exactly happened uh, and whatever narrative that the director picks tells me more about the, the director than necessarily all the time about the incident itself. And also the, the the ensuing violence that erupts after the incident at the motel is portrayed as a direct uh, effect from that incident without really developing what other uh, possible reasons there could be for a entire community just destroying its its its, its community. Uh, their community. Uh, so in that sense, we are learning a lot about what people understand is the reason for racism in America and what is the reason for the conditions of, of, of minority communities and what is the nature of racism in America. And, and the, the, well, as you mentioned, uh, the violence and the racism that the that the characters portray in the movie is so intense that it, it captures and it engulfs the entire narrative of the movie. Well, the whole point, I, I think, of the, the direction by uh, Ms. Bigelow is to make all audiences uncomfortable, uh, not just black, not just white, because it is extremely disturbing the, the, the treatment that uh, some of the individuals uh, are exposed to. And uh, I really think that uh, she does. She goes out of her way to depict good white police officers as well as the the very very bad police officer and uh, his two cohorts in actual crimes. So um, I, I I don't think that she is trying to exploit this as a, a racial narrative. I think she's actually trying to be fair and, and balanced, in not, not to quote uh, that network that uh, everybody seems to disparage. But I, I do think that uh, Bigelow and uh, the uh, screenwriter do go out of their way to be uh, fair to uh, not all white people are racist and not all black, and not all black people in the film are victims. And, and and that's that 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 goes to uh, one of the chapters in your book where you you talk about uh, quite a bit about how the easy way for a lot of uh, 
the racial turmoil that uh, we still experience in the United States is is based on the assumption of victimhood. No, absolutely. The the idea that that minorities, especially African Americans as a group, are, are victims portrays the history of our people in a very very specific narrow context. I think that we are we have used the background upon against which the beauty and the greatness of a people were manifested uh, as if it were the the, the protagonist, so the victim who becomes the protagonist instead of scenery in the drama of black uh, of black uh, empowerment, and and that can be very detrimental. I agree with you that the, in the movie we we, we see. Uh, we see an effort by the by by the by the director to not enter into that kind of, of narrative with uh, the nakedness of of, of of the of the violence that we portray that we see there it conveys the idea that you know that there is only hopelessness and the part of a segment of the community and the only answer to that to that naked racism is self-destruction. And uh, and that's where we need to be very careful. And I think that's where really the historiography of black existence in, in America has done a, a disservice to the community. And how, how, how do you mean? Well, a, the reality is that what is really important in the history of black America is not only that African Americans survived racism and discrimination and oppression, but they thrived in the presence of, of that of that reality of, of oppression. That should be the main uh, the main uh, focus of our history. For example, one of the great uh, historical realities of African Americans after emancipation is the history of so many uh, African Americans who walk and travel the entire country looking for their family members, trying to reunite themselves with those they love. And I think that sometimes we emphasize so much on what we suffered instead of what we did against the background of that suffering. And uh, we need to begin to change that narrative into one of hope, of beauty, and of strength instead of one that only react in the presence of, of oppression. That sort of flies in the face of uh, what one would read by Derrick Bell and Cornell West and and other intel, you know public intellectuals who discuss that uh, uh, racism is endemic in the in U.S. society. Twas always thus, and uh, will always be now and forever. Amen. Absolutely, it, it flies in the in the face of their beliefs and uh, flies in the face of most of what. Black intellectuals have told, told us for generations that racism is really the protagonist of the story, and we are scenery in the drama of their oppression. And, and blacks remain scenery in the drama of someone else. And not only that, then the answer is to change structures. In other words, those who are supposed to be in charge of the structures still have the power because it's up to them to change or not. So we have two alternatives, get angry, pump our fists in front of them and demand that they change, or feel sorry for ourselves. And, and I think that that is a disservice. It's, it's not conducive to a real encounter 
And what we have now in, in black America, in my opinion, is a monologue on race. There is a prefabricated, uh, it's, it's like a script that we are given, that you are supposed to follow this narrative of victimization because now there is power in victimization. Uh, there is power to receive certain concessions, and that is what we are looking after. And we need to break that idea, and we need to offer a new way of looking at the same historical events without uh, denying the reality of oppression, but transforming it into the beautiful story of survival and, 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 and thriving, as I said before. But I agree with you. Uh, many scholars don't see it that way. Well, I, in in reading your book, I, I admire some of the uh, individuals that you uh, that you bring up, such as Thomas Sowell, Jacques Maritain, and uh, our own Father Robert Sirico, in uh, discussing uh, economic realities and how. And your your father was a a full born flag waving communist, and 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 you uh, you rose from that background in uh, major poverty to uh, be a great outspoken person for free markets and, and racial equality. Well, uh, growing up in a communist household, and, and, and you, you learn that, that you are only a drop in the great wave of revolution. You, your life has no meaning apart from the group. If you are a faithful, uh, a faithful soldier in that a revolutionary uh, hurricane, and then your life has meaning. And apart from it, you are just a curious accumulation of atoms that really has no purpose in itself. And coming to America, I began to discover that, that each one of us has meaning, that the individual person is the methodological principle of understanding collective identity. And I think that serves us to understand black reality that every human person made in the image and likeness of God has the moral capacity of self-realization, and that we can learn and we can grow strong from the very history of our oppression if we recapture our individuality from the clutches of, of race consciousness. And that is exactly the opposite of what we are told, that we had to simply find less marginality by getting more and more in tune with the narrative of the group. And I think that that is not the way to, to move forward. Excellent. Let's close out with uh, the uh, one last question. Do movies like Detroit, or well, the movie Detroit specifically, is this production good or bad for race relations in the United States in 2017, uh, and we're recording this uh, shortly after events in uh, South Carolina. So I, I, th I think it's important for us to look at uh, the Antifa and uh, the white supremacist uh, clash that happened in, in South Carolina. That's such a great question, uh, uh, and I have pondered about it. Uh, and it really depends uh, in the context of what we are, I am seeing or we are seeing today in America. I think that it could be detrimental in the sense that if a person doesn't understand the context of that violence and takes it as if it is the, the violence we see in the movie in 1967, and we portray that violence as if it is the essence of our reality as a people, 
and in essence that is really pervasive in American in the American context because America is born into racial oppression then we simply translate that oppression to the present time and say well, you see <laughs> we were in the same situation we had in 1967 so some people may take that kind of raw naked violence to to portray uh, the the situation of today as just more of the same and at the same time as you mentioned and the positive characters in the movie may tend to be forgotten in, in, in the face of so much raw naked violence uh, because they do not convey the kind of effort that the kind of, of I mean emotions that, that, that violence and, and, and antagonism conveys. Mm -hmm. That movie can suffer exactly the same that uh, black history has suffered that the naked raw violence of oppression in the past becomes the the matrix of the understanding of 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 race in in America uh, so it's up to us to then to portray those positives in, and highlight them and continue to do that even in the face of those who tell us that if we do such a thing we are obviating the suffering of our people terrific Ismael Hernandez is the author of Not Tragically Colored, Freedom, Personhood, and the Renewal of Black America. We've been discussing the film Detroit, and um, you can get Ismael's book from the Acton website, and I, I encourage you to do so. Uh, I've been immersed in the book for the past several days and, and have found it to be absolutely amazing. And uh, this is one of those books where you actually need and have to read the footnotes because they're they're as compelling as the uh, the general text. So, uh, Ismail, I really would love to thank you for being here today. It's been a remarkable conversation, and uh, it's always amazing to, to listen to you speak on, on race relations and matters of faith and spirituality. Thank you so much. I, God bless you, and thank you for the opportunity. You're very welcome, sir. And for Upstream this week, this is Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll talk to you soon. Caroline Roberts and I am here with Jacqueline Isaacs for Radio Free Acton and Jacqueline Isaacs just finished up a presentation on the reconciliation of Christian faith and libertarianism and I have a couple questions for Jacqueline. I was wondering for our readers why do you distinguish between a Christian libertarian and a libertarian Christian? Yeah, so that's a great question, and it's key to our entire book. Um, we tried to very consistently say libertarian Christian, um, where libertarian is modifying the word Christian, um, to stress that our identity is as Christians first, uh, and that it's, it's more important to be a Christian than it is to be a libertarian. Uh, and that liber being a libertarian is something that is a, is a subset of our worldview, of specifically about what the government should and shouldn't do. Um, 
but our greater worldview is that of being Christians. I realized that there was one inconsistency in the book where I did say libertarian Christian because I was quoting something I had written years ago when I was less disciplined. Um, but we, we tried to say libertarian Christian throughout the book. Thank you. I was also wondering, why do you think so many have trouble reconciling their Christian faith with libertarianism? So a major theme in the book is that all of the authors were told by someone that you could not be a Christian and a libertarian. I was told by a coworker. One of my co-authors, Taylor Barkley, was told by a college professor at his Christian university that you could not be a Christian and a libertarian. So there's this sense in society, and both from Christians and libertarians, that for some reason these aren't compatible. I was actually watching an episode of Criminal Minds on Netflix recently, um, where they were talking about, they described someone or some group as being a libertarian group, and they said, but wait, libertarians aren't religious. And I like paused it, <laughs> and it was just floored that there, there really is this idea out there that libertarianism is somehow separate from faith. So it's, it's definitely a misconception that's out there, and it really affects people who do identify as a libertarian and as a Christian. Uh, I know myself personally, when I was first sort of facing this tension, uh, it just made me struggle with not feeling adequate sort of in either direction. Like I felt like I wasn't living up to my values as a libertarian, or more importantly, my values as a Christian, if both parties were not accepting me being a Christian and a libertarian. Uh, so one of the reasons why we wrote this book and why we've been going to conferences and stuff talking about it is to try and speak to that person who's dealing with that tension, whose family just told them that they couldn't be a Christian and a libertarian, whose college professor just told them that, um, who are sort of dealing with it for themselves, that one, they're not crazy, there really is a tension there, uh, and it is uh, a hard thing for people to work through, um, but two, that it is also totally possible to be a Christian and a libertarian. Yep. And I'm sure, like you said, there are many like struggling with that dichotomy that so many people think there's an inconsistency between their faith and um, their libertarian beliefs. Um, my last question for you is, how do you suggest that we exemplify to others that we can be both libertarian and Christian? I, I heard someone else speak to a group of students one time, and so I'm going to borrow their language, but they were talking about how do you be a Christian in the workplace uh, when you're working with non-Christians and be taken seriously. And her advice was, say that you're a Christian and you love Jesus, and then act normal. <laughs> and that that was the biggest way to really make an impact in people's life when they realize that being a Christian doesn't mean that you are diff like so different that they can't associate with you or so different that you won't associate with them. Um, and I think that's the biggest lesson that I've learned about being a Christian and a libertarian is that like go into Christian circles and say, I'm a libertarian and 
act normal and give a thoughtful explanation for my political beliefs um, and go into libertarian circles and say I'm a Christian and act normal <laughs> and give a thoughtful explanation uh, of the gospel. And so that's something that's been important to us uh, in the book is, is telling our stories, being, you know, just being relatable people and sharing where we've been and what we've been through and trying to, to help those people that are either in that place figuring it out or know someone or are a Christian trying to understand libertarians or are a libertarian trying to understand Christians um, to give them an example to look to um, from, from all of us. So there's six people involved in the project, so six examples of who to look at. Well, thank you very much, Jacqueline Isaacs, and be sure to check out her book, Call to Freedom, um, to learn more about why you can be both Christian and libertarian. That brings us to the end of another podcast here on Radio Free Acton. I want to thank a whole bunch of people. First of all, thanks to Daniel Menjivar, our producer, for putting this episode together, to Carolyn Roberts, uh, one of our assistant producers, for uh, handling the interview duties with Jacqueline Isaacs. Thank you as well to Jacqueline for joining us uh, at Acton on Tap and for be being willing to speak with us here on the podcast. We uh, do appreciate it. And to Ismail Hernandez, uh, who is, uh, of course, the executive director of the Freedom and Virtue Institute in Fort Myers, Florida. You can find them online at fvinstitute.org. Uh, also, you can uh, should, should also note, you can find uh, the Called to Freedom book at libertarianchristians.com. So head on over to those websites, take a look, uh, and uh, thanks as well uh, to not only to all of our guests and our producers, but thanks as well to you for joining us here on Radio Free Acton. We do appreciate our listeners. Hope you'll send the podcast around to your friends who might find it interesting, and uh, we will keep coming up with new podcasts for you to send around. So thanks for joining us today. We'll talk with you again later on on Radio Free Acton. Have a good day, everybody. The Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan has been promoting a free and virtuous society for over 25 years. Working with religious leaders, educators, business leaders, and students from all over the world, Acton is the connection between religion and business based on sound economic and moral principles. To support the great work that the Acton Institute does around the world, visit give.acton.org today. Again, that's give.actoen.org.